So when we last met, we were in Mark chapter 4, and Jesus was teaching in parables. Uh, He was teaching in parables to the multitudes of people that had gathered around him. And after teaching all day long, Jesus said, let us go over to the other side. So they all got in the boat, they crossed the Sea of Galilee, and on the way, it seems that a storm blew in, as is typical in that area. And as the storm blows in, what you'll find is that uh, the disciples did what you and I probably wouldn't do, but they did, they panicked. They were in the midst of this storm, and they were in a small boat, and they panicked. And Jesus was uh, asleep in the stern of the boat, and as he was asleep, it seems that the storm didn't seem to catch him by surprise, and on top of that, he was completely exhausted. And so as he's in the stern of the boat, it says he had a pillow and he was sleeping. Uh, The disciples are so panicked that they finally rush over to him and they say, Lord, do you not know that we're perishing? You know, and they, they, they entreat him and they say, this great storm, did you bring us out here to perish? And, and so he says to them, no, he doesn't say anything to him. He stands up and he says, peace, be still. He calms the storm. He calms the wind and the waves. And I, I made the comment last week, and I still think it's just as true, that oftentimes God can get through to creation and get it to obey faster than it can get, he can get us to obey to, to listen to his words, to heed them. And so uh, the, he calmed the storm. And so, but this week we're going to look at why he crossed over, why he called them to cross over with him. But I heard an interesting, uh, pa- someone said this week as I was listening to that passage be taught through, because oftentimes I teach a passage and then afterwards I'm like, man, I missed this part, this part, and this part. But there's still so much to draw from it. I can't tell you how many times I've read through Mark chapter 4, and yet each time I notice something a little bit different, the Lord speaks it to me. So we can never stop learning what the Lord has to teach us. But it says there, or where it says there, he says, uh, let us go over. And this pastor said, when Jesus says to you, let us go over, you will never go under, even when it seems like you might. And so I like that. I like the fact that he said, you know, when Jesus calls us to something, he's going to bring us through it. So as we look at what he was actually taking them to, he wasn't just taking them on a, on a pleasure cruise across the Sea of Galilee knowing there's a storm coming. He had a purpose for it. So as we start in Mark chapter 5, verse 1 tonight, we'll see that purpose. It says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now we see in Matthew's account that there were actually two demon-possessed men that they met in this place. And this is one of those places that scoffers, people that read the Bible, just kind of at a glance, they'll read through it and they'll say, well, there's contradictions. There's places where there's different testimonies about the same story. Well, uh, may I submit to you that isn't it possible that the two authors, Mark and Luke, excuse me, what was it? Yeah, Matthew was the one that said there was two. Isn't it possible that Mark and Luke actually just focused in on the the main character? Maybe there were two men there, but what they wanted to do was kind of focus in on what happened between Jesus and this one man. And so uh, scoffers will come along, but most of them won't do anything but point and say that there's something wrong rather than trying to see it out and see, you know, there might be a logical explanation for this. We've often said that there's, there's... 
four accounts of the gospel, but there's one gospel. And so each man writes down as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, being, in fact, an individual person, they notice different stuff. You know, Luke notices things about the fact that, you know, he notices stuff that kind of pertains to the things that he notices. He was a doctor. He makes the comment about Jesus when he was praying in the garden. He sweat as if there was great drops of blood. This was intriguing to him. And so Mark focuses in on this one man, verse 3, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. First of all, notice the state of this man. He's not living in a home or among other people. The people that did come near him did so to chain him up like an animal. Seems like you'd have to draw near to this guy in order to be able to chain him up. So somebody got close to him. But the only time that someone did get close to him was to chain him up. He was super strong. He was abnormally strong due to the influence of this demon over him. We know this because no matter how often he had been bound, he could always break free himself. It doesn't say that he looked really strong. It just says that he was. It says of him that he always, the word means constantly and continually, he always was in the mountains and amidst the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Who would you say typically spends much time amidst tombs? Those grieving, perhaps, those that go there to grieve the loss of maybe a loved one. Think about that on Memorial Day. And those who are not alive, those that are actually in the tombs. So it seems as though this man was wailing constantly and cutting himself as if he were trying to feel something. Oftentimes you think about when you, you know, uh, a lot of people will go to graveside and, and mourn and try to kind of remember that person or try to remember the way that that person made them feel. It's, a, it's kind of a place of remembrance. Well, this man seems to be there because he's trying to kind of in himself, trying to feel something. He's trying to, you know, and, and at the same time, it's a very empty place. There's no one else there. So perhaps this strength, excuse me, so those grieving, it seems as though this man was wailing and constantly cutting himself, so he's trying to feel something. He's tormented here. He's alone. Perhaps the strength that he possesses was something that caused him to get involved in some sort of cultic worship of false gods or idols. Did you know that when people worship false gods and idols, there, there's actually demons behind those idols? It says that in the Old Testament over and over again. They're not actually worshiping that piece of furniture that it basically is, if we know that in truth. But they're worshiping a demon behind it. A demon that might promise something even. And this man, maybe you know, his life had gotten to the point where he was just like, if only I could have strength to be able to work through my circumstances, then, then I could have peace about it. And so maybe he opened himself up to these demons not knowing they were demons, and, and in doing that, he gave himself over to the power of those demons. And so that's what happens oftentimes, though. You know, Satan, he, he deceives us, and he offers us something that seems like it's going to give us pleasure. It seems like it'll be the fix to whatever it is we're dealing with. And oftentimes, he gives that to us, and we're like, oh, man, even if we're Christians, we'll think, you know, hey, I can give myself over to this because it'll make me feel better. 
And, uh, but this man here, he, he is offered this power and he gets it. He gets exactly what he wanted. And when he gets it, it seems that it takes him over. It becomes everything that runs him. And so it was a quick fix, but in the long run, it was something that he willingly put himself into bondage over. He put himself into a spiritual jail cell. And so oftentimes we do this in order to find a fix quick in our, quick fix in our situation. And this man, because of that, ends up being overcome by these demons. These demons promise one thing, and when they're allowed in, they bring what was promised along with the consequences that they never told you about. Now, what I must add is that we do not know exactly how this man became possessed, but what we do know is that he, at this point, is. So as a result of that, is that he is tormented by demons, and he is a slave to them, and their control over him has forced him into isolation. That's what our sin does, right? It forces us into a place where we have to hide what we once thought was good, and we hide it because we don't want anybody else to know that that thing is there. And then because of that, we don't ever get to confess it, and we end up in bondage to it. So he's away from society and crying out continuously, it seems like, for relief. So verse 6, When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there, near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission, and then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about two thousand, and the herd ran violently down the steep into down the steep place into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. So we first notice the response of this man under the influence of demons at the sight of Jesus. It might not be the response that you would expect from a demon possessed man. It seems, though, in verse 6, that he ran to him and he worshipped him. The word worship there has the comparison of, and this, forgive this, but it was, to me, it seemed like the most humble thing. Uh, it has the comparison of a dog licking its master's hand or to prostrate yourself and adore something. He's, he's humbled himself. He's thrown himself down on the ground and he said, you know, what have you to do with me, son of the most high God? He's worshiping him in truth. You see, the demon's knowledge of Jesus is actually biblically sound, probably more biblically sound than a lot of the people that we see on TV that are claiming to be Bible teachers. They, you know, they, they knew more about Jesus. Excuse me. Notice that he addresses Jesus in verse 7 as Jesus, Son of the Most High God. They knew more about who Jesus was than even the religious leaders of that day. But there's one problem here, you see. Remember what James says about faith and works. This isn't a, a worship of faith, this is a worship of fear. And so they're bowed down before him, and at the same time, James says, you believe that there was one God... And you do well in doing this. Even the demons believe, though, and they tremble. 
But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? In the same way, this man, under the control of these demons, he trembles in the presence of Jesus. And even he knows that Jesus has authority over him because he entreats him. He asks him, you know, you're not, in one of the accounts he says, you're not going to torment me before the time. See, the demons know what we oftentimes deny is that Jesus at one point will have the final judgment. And so uh, he begs Jesus to send him not out of the country, but to send him into the swine, the pigs that are nearby. So immediately after Jesus gave them permission, they went out of the man and they went into the swine. Notice that the result of the demons entering the swine was also torment and ultimately their destruction, their demise. Demons cannot have physical impact on this world, it seems, unless there's a physical body to carry them. And so they, they need something in order to be able to touch. And so uh, an entire herd of swine is destroyed, but a man having the thing that was tormenting him is completely evicted or sent out by the authority of Jesus himself. This demon has been sent out of this man. So verse 14 So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus. They saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion, sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. And then they began to plead with him to depart from the region and when he got into the boat, okay, so I stopped there. So those who were in charge of the swine went into the city and the country and brought lots of people back with them to see what had happened. I've read this before, and I oftentimes thought it was just the men that were watching the swine, kind of the herdsmen, were coming in to indict Jesus and send him away. But what they did was they told everybody that they knew in the city and in the country, and they brought them, them back with them. Now, you could see where this would be important, not for them, it doesn't seem. It actually helps the case of Jesus because everyone knows this guy. This guy can't be around the town. He can't be around the tombs without everyone knowing who he is. He's the town freak. He's the one that everyone's staring at. He's the one that when they see him and they hear him crying out, they're like, what is wrong with that guy? (laughs) Everyone knows him. They might even call him screaming cutting guy. They got all their nicknames for him, right? You know, and, and every town has this. In my own town, I have uh, just a couple of blocks from me, there's this family, and it seems like they have two sons, and they're always walking around town. And, you know, a lot of that is because they don't drive, but they're always going to the grocery store, or they'll go into different places of business. And a lot of the time, they don't buy anything, but, you know, the, the store owners, if they're gracious, will give them something to drink or eat, and then they'll send them on their way. But these, these guys scare me. They, they, they're always talking to themselves when they walk down, the, and they don't have the earbuds in, you know, and there's something wrong with them. And I don't know if it's a spiritual issue, and I don't know if it's just that they have some sort of, you know, mind debilitating thing going on, but I do know that I see them and I, I kind of, I'm like, what in the world is going on? But I, I know at the same time that the Lord has a heart for them because he went to this guy. I know that he has a heart for them because he not only went to this guy, but it seems like he went six miles overnight through a storm to go to this guy. And so Jesus meets this guy in his situation and, uh, 
And despite, to the crowd's chagrin, as Josh Driscoll would say, I learned what that word meant for him, <laughs> to the crowd's chagrin, they actually, he heals them anyway, even though it causes the entire town, the city, the people around to say, hey, um, I know you healed this guy, but can you leave? You just killed our entire herd of swine, and we were kind of dependent on that for money. And so he sends them away. You know, they come out, and they kind of like a pitchfork mob, and they see this guy. The testimony against them is that they see that this man is in his right mind, but at the expense of their herd. And so because they care more about making money than about individual people, what they do, and the indictment against them is that they send Jesus out of their town. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's convicting. You know, I wonder oftentimes what my own personal uh, idols, if you will, in my life have caused me to push Jesus out of areas of my life. And I think that happens in a lot of places, not just towns. I think it happens in places of business because you won't make as much money if you're playing Christian music. I think it happens in homes where you won't have as many friends because maybe they disagree with what you believe. But the cool thing here is that Jesus isn't worried about that. He's caring about this guy, and because of that, he also has his disciples that watch that. And do you know that when you, you know, condone something or don't condone something and you love people, despite what it's going to mean for your reputation, there's always someone watching. And hopefully, like Jesus, you're taking people so they will see that. You know, your children, people you work with, they'll see that your character goes beyond your circumstance. So, you see, when Jesus got into the boat, says he asked him to go away. When Jesus got in the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him. I guess I shouldn't skip over that. I guess I didn't skip over that. Verse, 19, verse 18, the end of that, it says that when he got in the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. Remember the apostles, their first call when Jesus chose the twelve, he said, I'm calling you to be with me and to be sent by me. So this man, without even being called to it, without even anybody explaining it to him or being there when he did that, he wants to be with Jesus. So verse 19 says, However, Jesus did not per permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Verse 20, And he departed and he began to proclaim in Decapolis and all that Jesus had done, excuse me, in Decapolis, all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. You see, Jesus had truly touched this man, man's life, and the result of that touch was evident, not just to those who saw it, but also to those who knew him before. This man was living a, a living testimony to God's grace and his forgiveness and his compassion, his mercy in action. He had mercy on him that caused him to do something about it. Everyone else saw an inconvenience. Jesus saw a man who needed forgiveness and his compassion. Everyone else saw, uh, excuse me, Jesus leaves him there in an area called Decapolis. Now, just a little Greek for you. If you've ever been in geometry class, you know, you think of an octagon, you think of a stop sign. But Decapolis is just like octo, means eight, like an octopus. But then you have Decapolis, which deca in Greek means ten, and polis means city. So this area is just not a town called Decapolis. This is an area with ten cities. 
These are large cities at that time. And so Jesus basically saves this man and he says, no, you're not going to go with me. I'm going to leave you here as a seed of my word, of my gospel, my testimony, my works, what I'm able to do. And what you know about this man is that he responds by saying, he doesn't go, oh, but I really want to go with you. Let me go anyway. He says, okay. He stays there. He's content. He knows that he's got more life than he ever had before because he's been had this demon removed by Jesus. And so he's like, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he says, stay here. I want you to stay here and I want you to be a witness. So in the same way, Jesus saves men and women still today. When he saves us, the result is a life that will never be the same. Notice that he does not take us straight to heaven to go and be with him. You know, you ever wonder why Jesus, when he saves us, he doesn't just go, all right, you're saved. Come to heaven, pluck us out like we would if we're fishing. You know, what we do is we catch fish, we pull them out, we put them in, and we're going to fillet and we're ready to eat them. <laughs> Jesus doesn't do any of that. <laughs> but what he does is he says, I've caught you. I've, I've captured you. I've come to you. I've saved you. Not so that you can be blessed, although you're going to be blessed. You're, you're remo- you know, your sin, you're no longer in bondage to your sin or whatever had you in bondage, but you're now going to be my messenger. I'm going to leave you and I'm going to send you to your people. Now, Jesus obviously has issues with that because Jesus himself was not accepted amongst those that he lived closest to. And one of the hardest things is becoming a Christian and realizing that a lot of the people you're related to may not ever hear the gospel from you. I'm still trying to let go of that. But what I do know is that those who won't listen, Jesus didn't say, keep begging them. He said, move on, shake the dust off your feet, and move on to somebody else, and continue to pray for those people. And that's, that's the hard thing. But this man, he says, go back to your house, go back to your family, tell them what I've done for you. And what's cool about that is oftentimes a guy like that, who was so radically saved, he goes back to his home and his whole household gets saved. Think about the man that was saved, the Philippian jailer, that when he, uh, uh, Paul and, and his cohort were singing in the jail because they'd been put in jail in Acts, I think it was chapter 7, uh, they were praying and they decided, you know what, we're in jail, we should start singing worship music. And they did, and because of that there was this great earthquake that actually opened all the gates, the, the jail was, all the doors were open. And because, you know, the Greek or the, the Roman guard that was watching them, if they were caught letting somebody go, even on accident, their own life would be taken. They would be put to death for the loss of that criminal. But Paul said to him, he said, don't take your own life, we're, we're all still in here. And because of that, that man got saved. He, he became a Christian and he went home, he took the guy home and he, he washed all the wounds of Paul. And, and because of that, his whole household was saved. So it's kind of the same thought here. But here's another thought about this region that they're in. Remember I told you it was called the Gadarenes. We've we got to get a better idea of where we're at because it gives a little more context about the people. You see, the people of Israel were delivered from slavery by God from the land of Egypt. And uh, He used Moses. And as He brought them miraculously across the Red Sea, they ended up in this region... And after 40 years in the wilderness, they finally start to go into the land. And in Numbers chapter 32, it says that the children of Reuben, 
and Gad, after arriving with the rest of the children of Israel, decided that the land they were on, east of the Jordan, not the promised land, but this land that they had kind of captured in order to get into the promised land, they thought, you know, we've got a lot of cattle. There's a lot of grazing land here. So this is a good place to raise our massive herds of cattle that the Lord has provided. So before the Israelites crossed over the Jordan into the land that God had promised them, the children of Reuben and Gad asked Moses if they could have their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan instead of where God had promised them on the west side of the Jordan. So Moses was concerned that they would be a discouragement to the rest of the Israelites by not helping them go in and subdue the land that God had instructed them to cross over the Jordan and go in and possess. Remember, he told them, he said, I want you to cross over into the land. And actually, Moses ended up having to stay because he misrepresented the Lord. So they basically stayed in the land that Moses would have done anything to get into. And so as a concession, Moses allowed the people to settle their families on the east side of the Jordan. Actually, in Numbers chapter 32, verse 18 through 22, it says, uh, he says, the, the people say, we will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance. They were going to cross over the Jordan, go and fight for the land that was promised to them by God, and then they were going to cross back out and take second best. You know, they were going to fight for the land, but they weren't going to enjoy the fruits of their labor. But they told them, we'll still fight for the land, and then after that, we'll go back to east of the Jordan. Well, as a result of that, they end up settling in this land, and those who stayed on the east side of the Jordan, which were Reuben and Gad, remember that were in the land that I would just described of the Gadarenes, it's called after them still, and uh, the problem with staying on the east side of the Jordan, however, was that the people were not protected by the natural boundary of the Jordan. You see, the kings would go out in the springtime to, to do war, and during that time, it just so happened that the, the Jordan would be flooded over its banks. So if a, an army wanted to cross over and start fighting the Israelites, they couldn't. They were protected by this natural boundary that God had provided. So they weren't protected by that boundary because they were on the east side of it. And so because of that, when they were attacked and they were overrun by other nations, those nations brought in their belief systems with them. And guess what? Because they weren't with their other brethren, they weren't fellowshipping with the Israelites and in the land that was promised to them, they started to mix religion. They started to take little pieces that they thought, you know what, let's, let's take this little piece and mix it with, with our religion. Let's take this little piece and, you know, the Ten Commandments is good, but I don't really like the sixth one, so we're not going to follow that one. We'll, we'll put this one in its place. And because of that, they got watered down. And not only did it affect them, but it affected them spiritually to the point that here they are, years later, Jesus comes on the scene, and what do they have? They have a herd of 2,000 swine. Well, in the Old Testament, they weren't supposed to have pigs. They weren't supposed to eat them, and therefore they didn't really have any use for them. It's not like they're like oxen where you can start dragging a plow with them. They, were, they had them so they could get them some bacon. So, you know, which I like bacon, but they weren't supposed to have it. And it, so it causes a lot of problems, and it ended up being a problem for this man because no doubt occultism or beliefs of false gods and false idols kind of crept into their culture and this man who was amongst the tombs was a result of that. He had been given over to demons. They weren't even supposed to have them in the land. And so uh, because of that compromise early on, not taking all that God had for them, a little step of disobedience that was 
You know, he gave them the ability. He said, okay, go ahead and stay. But it wasn't really his best plan for them. And so years later, that compromise led to a man being in bondage. Now, you can't blame all of culture for the man's sin. He still is accountable for his own sin. But at the same time, you know, in a different situation, maybe he'd been a little bit more raised in the word. So verse 21, now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, he leaves. It seems like that's the only reason he went over there. Of course, at the same time, he wasn't allowed to do anything. They sent him out. They said, get out of our region. Um, then he crossed over by, the, by boat to the other side, and a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And he begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Uh, my, we were reading through this last night, and my wife was like, What does thronged mean? And I was like, You know what? I don't know. It just means that they were pressing in on him. That's what thronged means. So coming now back to Capernaum, uh, Jesus crosses back over the Sea of Galilee. He gets to the West Bank. And uh, Jairus, one of the rulers of the synagogue there in Capernaum, came to Jesus. He was desperate because at home, notice, he begged him earnestly saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Probably the easiest way to get to the heart of man is through his children. The easiest way to soften his heart is through his children. And this man here uh, sees his daughter sick. To see our children sick, to see them suffering, moves people more than almost anything else. And it makes sense because they're, they're the ones that we're responsible for. But Jairus here is the leader of the temple. And so he needed a lot more, excuse me, the tabernacle, uh, no, the synagogue. He was the leader of the synagogue. And for Jairus, he was witnessing his little daughter dying. And we're told that she was about 12 years old. We're also told in Luke's account that she was their only little girl. It makes a big difference, right? When it's the only one. Remember Abraham, you know, when he offered up his son Isaac by faith, by God asking him to, it was a big step of faith because it was the one son that he knew that God had given him. But at the same time, what God did is he says, now that I know that you would give me your only son as a sacrifice, I know that I can trust you. And he provides his only son. Jesus came through the Father, was God's only son, and so in that, we see that perfect picture. And, and not only that, but, but Abraham being willing to give up that only son that, you know, at his age of 90 or 100 years old, God told him, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to raise a nation through you. Your people are going to be more than the sand of the sea. So if he thought that he was going to die or be sacrificed, it seems like he'd really be tested in his faith of what God had already said he was going to do. But for 12 years, she had been a gift of blessing in their home. But now the father's heart is breaking. It's obvious that his little girl is dying and nothing, nothing can be done. They have only one hope. And what's interesting about this situation is that Jairus had probably been in the controversy a little while back in Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, when they were arguing whether it was, you know, okay to heal on the Sabbath or not. And they were indicting Jesus. They were saying, you can't heal on the Sabbath. This is blasphemy. But what happens is Jesus shows up 
And this man has seen the healing power of Jesus. And so he comes out to Jesus and he's like, you know, I don't agree with him healing on the Sabbath, but I need a miracle here. And so Jesus, long-suffering and willing to, to minister to this man, even though he'd probably been one of the biggest guys against him, opposing him in, in the synagogue, Jesus ministers to him. And this man is torn between wanting to be by his little daughter's side, but knowing that she had to have quick help. So he leaves and goes to this crowd, and he seems like he had to push through pretty hard to get to Jesus. They were thronging. They were pressing in. So you've got to press harder if someone else is pressing, right? So he really wanted to be then in there. So Jesus responds by going with Jairus. But it seems there that he doesn't only ask him to come. He says, he gives this statement of faith. Please come. My little daughter is at the point of death. Just lay your hand on her and she'll be healed. That's quite a bit of faith. I don't know about you guys, but I, I'm really convicted about this because this man that didn't even walk with Jesus, didn't have the New Testament, didn't have the testimonies of all these stories, he looks at this man, he looks at Jesus and he says, I know that if you lay your hands on my daughter, she can be healed. Wow. And so he turns around and he goes with Jairus. He leaves this entire crowd, which no doubt, you know, that would be hard to do because they're all his children. But he leaves all of them to go to the one. And as he goes, because this man begged him, Jesus responds by going with Jairus. And in verse 23, he says, Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed. Healed there actually doesn't just mean like, hey, help her feel better. It means to be made completely whole. That's quite a statement of faith. So verse 25, while they're going on the way, verse 25 says, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around and in the crowd said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging or pressing you, and you say, Who touched me? And he, who looked, around, and he looked around to see her who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So on the way to Jairus, 12-year-old daughter, who had been source of blessing to their uh, house for 12 years, Jesus crosses paths with a woman who had had a flow of blood for 12 years. She'd been afflicted for 12 years. Isn't that funny? Two completely different things happening at the same time. One, one girl who had been alive for 12 years and a blessing. The other one who had been afflicted for 12 years and, you know, not tormented necessarily, but in some ways I bet she was. But apparently she suffered from some sort of internal bleeding that until this point was not able to be healed or mended. It would seem from verse 26 that she had, suffered, she had suffered many things by many physicians. She sought out help and she didn't care what the surgery cost because it says she's out of money by this point. And she didn't care how much it hurt because she'd rather go through the momentary and light affliction 
to be able to get rid of this affliction that, that hurt her all the time. And so, not only that, but she was probably ostracized by her community because to have a flow of blood like that was to make one unclean. She couldn't even go into the house of worship to worship if she wanted to because she was ceremonially unclean. So it says in verse 27 that she heard about Jesus, not just his name, just, not just what he had said, but it must have been about what he had been doing, what he was able to do. And so uh, she wants healing. And it says there that when she was healed, or she was made completely whole. It's the same word that was used when Jairus wanted his daughter to be healed. The word is sodezo. I guess that's how you say it. It's in Greek, so I don't know. But it means healed or to be made completely whole yet again. So as she touched his garment, it says that immediately her blood was dried up. So not only was the source healed, but also the result of it. She was healed and cleansed all in the same, all in the same breath. So Jesus senses that power has gone out from him and asks who's, who touched his garment. Now, I don't believe that Jesus didn't know who had touched his garment. I think Jesus knows when things go on, and he knows, when thi- you know, he knows the things that we don't even know that are going on. Even amidst us, every one of us has stuff that no one else knows, but Jesus knows. But in this case, I don't think he was asking because he didn't know who had touched him. Um, I believe that Jesus was looking for the woman who had been healed by him to stand up and to testify, be a witness to the truth that she had indeed been healed. You see, every time that Jesus heals someone, it's so that God the Father will be glorified. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. So those who are redeemed aren't just redeemed so that they can be redeemed, but also so they can be a testimony. But verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So when she just tells him back what he already knows is true, that she's been healed, not only does he know and get the glory, but his father gets the glory, really. And then other people know, just like Jairus, that he's able, and they're able to come to the same source of healing. So the disciples, however, miss the point of Jesus asking this question, and they give kind of a smart aleck answer. Like, don't you see everybody's touching you? Of course, someone touched your garment, you know? It's kind of a silly question to them. But the woman, knowing what had happened, and she's fearing and trembling, perhaps because of her affliction and the 12 years of embarrassment. I don't know about you guys, but even when I have a a blood flowing through my hand, when I've got a a boo-boo on my hand, I don't want people to see me bleeding. And I definitely don't want them to see my nasty Band-Aid. It's embarrassing. And so this woman, probably more so, is embarrassed, and she doesn't, you know, she's fearing and trembling that people are, she's going to be found out. Who knows? She's probably been trying to hide this for years. But before we move on, it's important to note that there was nothing special about the garment that she touched. Only that the garment was a touch point for her faith to be released. You see, her faith was not in the garment. Her faith was in Jesus being able to heal her. So when she reaches out and touch him, it's, it's just her, you know, having a spot to touch. It's a, a, a place, you know. Uh, when we confess our sins, James even tells us to have, have the elders you know, lay hands on us so that we can be healed. 
And oftentimes people confess their sins to the Lord, but they kind of go on for years and years and years and they go, I don't know if God forgave me. Well, the problem is, is that they don't have anything tangible. They know the truth of God's word. They know that he does forgive and that he's righteous and just to do it. But oftentimes they continue to kind of, you know, be down on themselves for years and years and years because they haven't confessed that to somebody who is able to say, look, the Lord's forgiven you. It's a testimony of two witnesses. And so in this case, you know, she's got that touch point. I don't even know why I said that because I was just thinking about the touch point and how, how effective that it is in our walk with the Lord. That's why we need fellowship. But perhaps in, for the first time in 12 years that someone had looked her in the eye, I think she, she felt that, you know, that, that need being met. You see, in those days, if you were sick, people would assume that you had done something evil in order to kind of contract that sickness. People can be so superstitious and have so little compassion, but not Jesus. But we remember that Jesus is still on the way to Jairus' daughter, and time was short before, so we best move forward. But before we do, I think it's important to point out that many people had at different points already touched Jesus and had relieved he- received healing. Why did Jesus stop and ask who had touched him this time? It says there in uh, verse 35, While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. And this connection will be made here shortly. But he says, Why trouble the teacher any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. You see, Jairus was with him the entire time on the way back to his house. And so he just witnessed this healing take place, but had Jesus not stopped and said, who just touched me and was healed? Had he not stopped and said that, nobody would have seen it. Well, not only would God not have gotten the glory, but also Jairus, who needed an encouragement right now, got to hear the testimony of what this woman had just experienced at the touch of of Jesus' hand. And this kind of reminds him. He goes back to what he said in verse 23. Jesus is reminding him, you've already said the statement of faith. Now know that it's, it's a valid faith. In verse 23, it said, you know, Jairus had said, come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. And so there's that statement of faith. And then there's the confirmation that the faith is in something worthy of being trusted by the testimony of this woman who had just been healed. So verse 37, and we'll close up with this part. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Verse 38, Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult, and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to him, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, and entered where the child was lying. And then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumai, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. So Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John to be witnesses to the works that will take place here. And remember, much of what we read in Mark was actually told him firsthand by the recollection of Peter, so it makes sense that he would be here witnessing this. 
when they arrive, there's a large group there wailing and mourning. In the Jewish culture, wailing, they would actually even hire people to come and, and mourn for their lost loved one. And uh, so when Jesus responds to those people that are weeping and wailing by saying in verse 39, why make this commotion and weep? He's not being as insensitive as you might think. He's just saying like, hey, you don't have to actually be here right now. It's not really needed because she's just sleeping. Nevertheless, when Jesus told them, they ridiculed him. A note that implies that they were really not mourning over the girl. They go straight from mourning, it says, or weeping, to ridicule. (laughs) I don't know too many people that can shift gears that fast. There are some, but not too many. So with only the parents and Peter, James, and John, he spoke directly to the little girl and said, Arise. Immediately in obedience, as if her creator had just spoken to her, she arose and she walked. She didn't falter, she didn't stumble, but she arose as if she had been only been resting on her bed. And he said this all to her in Aramaic. That was the Talitha Kumai. Uh, it actually means, it's a very endearing term, it means, my little lamb, arise. You see, Jesus didn't heal this girl for her sake because really for her, the better thing would be to go to heaven. You know, that's the better place to be between this world and heaven. She would be with her heavenly father right then. But he says to her, little lamb, arise. And so it makes me think that, you know, and not only that, but that was their household language. It was Aramaic. But it makes me think that, you know, oftentimes we think that God saves people because, well, it's the best for them, you know, bringing them back to life. But it seems like here, the main motivation for Jesus actually bringing this girl back to life was that her father came and begged him, please, please restore my, my daughter to life. And, and, and it makes me think also that oftentimes we, we don't see people get saved or healed because we don't have to, we, we just haven't prayed. We haven't asked the right person. We've gone to the doctors. We've done all these things. But God's wanting to do something amazing. But anyway, from tonight's passage, I I think it's important that we take note of the way that people are touched by Jesus. Number one, we think about, uh, for some, Jesus comes to us like he did the demon-possessed man. He came through quite a storm to get to you and I. And what I love about that particular passage is that Jesus, it seems, only went across the sea through the storm for one man. Had I been the only man alive, this is the way I think about it, had I been the only man alive who needed redemption, Jesus still would have done it. It's that personal. He did it for you and I individually. He did, yes, he died for the world, but more so, he died for individual people. Number two, for others, Jesus draws near to us And we can come to him like the woman who had the affliction of the flow of blood for 12 years. She had tried everything else that money could buy and only ended up worse off. All it took was faith in Jesus and to have his power touch her, and she was made whole, completely whole. And number three, for many, Jesus goes with us wherever we go. That's you and I. He's going with us everywhere that we ask him to go. Do you know that he's there whether we ask him to or not? But sometimes I think we just need to pray, Lord, go with me through my day today. Give me your eyes. Give me the ability to see things the way that you do. And I think it's funny too, you know, when when I first started walking with the Lord, I started realizing that not only that, but when I realized that Jesus is going with me everywhere I go, it changed what I watched. 
It changed what I spent my time doing and saying and being. I wanted to please Him. But for many, Jesus goes with us wherever we see need by His Spirit. Wherever there is a man or a woman moved with compassion, there's intercession, there's prayer for the lost. This man had been broken to the point of, I guess all we can do is pray. But when we get to that spot, when all we can do is pray, we often say that in a defeated way. Really, it's the best thing we could have ever done in the first place. So wherever this is a man, wherever there is a man or a woman moved with compassion, there's intercession. Jairus was moved to de- by desperation by the possible loss of his daughter, and because of that, he sought out Jesus and asked him to get involved and make his daughter whole so that he would not lose her. We too have this opportunity to be those who would allow the, world, the Lord to stir us in compassion and brokenness for our lost loved ones, for lost souls in order that we would be moved to the point of tears even sometimes. Not just to tears though, but to our knees as Jairus was. He begged Jesus to get involved and save those who without his touch will be lost. So may we be those who would beg, Lord, please save fill in the blank, because we have many people that don't know the Lord. I guarantee it. I have in my own life, I can't even count how many people don't know the Lord. But, uh, but God is able. 